Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Board Game Breakdown Podcast. In this podcast, we're going to dive deep into a single mechanic or feature that makes a board game compelling. My name is Aaron, I'm your host, and I thank you for being here. Each episode, we start by looking at a board game-related feature topic before jumping into a breakdown of a board game mechanic. In this episode, we're going to break down a mechanic in the game Medieval Academy. This isn't the most well-known game in the world, It's something I remember seeing the Dice Tower touch on a few years back and talk about that they liked. But as far as the past few years, I haven't really seen much coverage or talk of this game. And that's a real shame. As you're going to see when we get to the mechanic breakdown, this is a game I really like. And I think there's a mechanic in it that elevates it above similar games that are weighted in the same kind of area and fill the same kind of space in a game night. And so it kind of makes Medieval Academy worth a look for most game groups in my opinion. But first, let's get to our feature topic. Our feature topic for this episode is something I'm calling The Banishing. For the first time in my board game life, I'm going through my collection and getting rid of some games, sort of. Normally, people call this culling their collection, but I always want to make sure I'm perfectly honest and upfront on this podcast. With one exception, which I'll explain in a few minutes, I'm not getting rid of these games all the way yet. Some of them will definitely eventually be ejected from my possession, but what I'm doing right now is banishing games from my main set of shelves, which we keep in the living room, to the shelves in my wretched extra bedroom. This room, it's not air conditioned, it's not heated, It contains a whole bunch of storage stuff and a whole bunch of dust. It got so hot in there a few summers ago that the blinds on the window literally melted. So it's not a good place to store board games. That should explain to you how I feel about the games I'm banishing to this room. You may be asking why just banish them instead of culling them. I've got a few reasons. Probably the best reason and maybe the most honest reason is that I just don't want to go through the trouble right now. I hate reselling things. The whole process is tedious and annoying, and I don't want to mess with that. I really like the idea of giving games away, but shipping used board games is a real pain. I've had some really bad experiences with that in the past, so I don't want to commit to doing that yet. So for now, these games are just getting banished out of sight, away from the main shelf, and far, far away from my gaming table. I can say with quite a lot of confidence, I don't think I'll ever play any of these games again in the future. Before we get to the list and the reasons why I'm banishing each game, I wanna talk a little bit about why I'm culling my collection and why I think it's a healthy thing to do. Board gaming is a hobby and hobbies should be about fun. I know that games can be a little pricey and there can be this odd pressure to play a game a few more times, even after you've realized you don't like it. Or maybe it's just the fact that you paid 60 bucks for a game and even though you don't like it, you're just not willing to cut your losses and get rid of it. My take on this is that all aspects of board gaming should be fun. People often refer to having a shelf of shame, which if you've never heard that, that's kind of a phrase people use to explain a place where new games they've bought are waiting to be played. Sometimes games can sit on a shelf of shame for years, but I have to be honest, I hate the phrase shelf of shame. It just seems unnecessarily negative. How about the, the, let's be optimistic for a second. 
How about the shelf of anticipation? How's that for an, an optimistic spin? Can you tell I'm in public relations? Because I am. If I buy a game and wait five years before I play it, who says I have to be ashamed about that? Who says that's something to be ashamed of? Board gaming is fun. It's a hobby. And if I play a game the day I buy it, or if I don't play it for two decades after I buy it, I'm gonna have fun. In that same vein, if I'm done with a game, or if a game just doesn't quite work for me and my group, why force yourself to keep it around? If you're okay with reselling, try to recoup some money or donate it to a friend who loves it. See if your library or a local organization might take it. I just found out recently, our local library is apparently checking out board games to people. So there's plenty of things you could find to do with it. Make back your money or move it on to a new home. Guess what? Getting rid of a game opens up space to replace it with a new one. And if you're a degenerate like me who loves buying new board games, from that angle, culling a game is a good thing. Now you've just opened up space for the next great game you're gonna buy. So there's some optimistic ways to view this process. The fact is, we're always growing, we're always changing. The tastes of us and our groups are always changing and shifting. The board game industry is always changing and shifting. Games that worked a few years ago may not work today and that's okay. Call it and move on. So what am I banishing and why? Let's get to the list. First up is Dead Men Tell No Tells. This is a cooperative pirate game where you're on a pirate ship that's on fire and being overrun by ghouls and skeletons and stuff. This one is tough for me because my first experience with the game a few years ago was a huge success. A coworker brought it in and we played it three players over the course of what turned out to be a long lunch, nobody tell the boss, and it was so much fun. So when I saw a chance to pick up a copy earlier this year for myself, I was really excited. But I have to say, this game just fell flat for me and my group. It's really fiddly. There's just so much to keep up with every single turn. It's just this huge overwhelming mess going on every turn. I don't know, it was just one of those rare flops for me and my gaming group. I've stubbornly let it sit there thinking I'd play it again, but I've made the decision and this one is getting banished. Next up is a game called City of Horror. And this is an odd situation for you because City of Horror is one of my favorite board games of all time. If you've never played it, it's a zombie game where you control a number of survivors that are huddled up in a town. Whenever your location gets overrun, all the players who are in that building have to vote to see who they're gonna throw out into the street to get eaten by the zombies. It creates some tense, hilarious moments. And when I first got it years ago, my game group loved it. What's interesting though, is that the dynamic of my gaming group has changed dramatically since then. We're just not interested in playing games that have this level of meanness in them. There's nothing wrong with the game. It's just not the vibe we're looking for on our game nights. So while it pains me a bit, if the game isn't going to ever make it back to the table, there's no reason for me to get too sentimental about it. I've got great memories from this one, but I think it's time has passed for us, so it's getting banished. Ah, oh, this next one, what a disappointment. Star Trek, the deck building game, the next generation, next phase. 
Yes, that's the whole title. That should have been a red flag from the start. But I'm such a nerd for Star Trek The Next Generation. When I was younger, my big brother and I watched new episodes of it together. Every Sunday night, it was a special thing. If you follow me on Instagram, you already know how I feel about this game because I'm such a huge Star Trek fan, like I just mentioned. When I happened upon this game in a thrift store earlier this year, I was like super excited. But when I finally popped this one open and tried it, the game was just not good. The rule book is not nearly complete enough. It leaves a lot of things unexplained. And the game itself is just really poorly balanced. On my very first turn, my ship was blown up. And a few turns later, my ship was caught in a stasis field that caused me to miss my next two turns. It's all just bad game design that I don't understand why anyone ever thought was fun. Early on in the game, your crew and your ship is just sad and powerless. And then all of a sudden, 30 minutes later, your crew and your ship is godlike and you easily complete whatever challenge comes at you. I'm all for nostalgia, but that isn't enough to cover up a bad game. And this was just a bad game. I'm banishing this one with prejudice. All right, let's get controversial because my next pick is Canvas. Most people who play Canvas can't stop talking about how beautiful it was and how much fun it is, how they love stacking these see-through cards to create paintings. So I tracked it down, I bought it, I excitedly got it to the table and I proceeded to be bored out of my mind. I'm sorry everyone, but there's barely any game in this game. Is it fun? to stack a see-through card of a dancer on top of a see-through card of a thunderstorm and create a painting called Raindrop Dancer. It's novel, maybe, but I don't think it's fun. And that's pretty much all you're doing. It's like a children's art activity, not a game. There are some symbols you're trying to get on your finished painting so you can score points. But as far as game mechanics go, that's it. I just don't get the appeal. I know I'm in the minority on this. I know a lot of people like this one, but I find this game to be a complete bore and it is with no hesitation that I'm banishing this one. Next up, we've got another easy decision with Back to the Future, Back in Time. Here's a question. Do you know who's a real butthead? Biff. Biff is a butthead. If you've watched the Back to the Future movies and thought about how much of a jerk Biff is, then play this game and your hatred of him will grow to new levels. There's so much to love in this game. It's a really charming and faithful recreation of the first Back to the Future movie. The art is amazing. There are some great components, but man, the gameplay is just so dry and endlessly frustrating. George and Lorraine, Marty's parents, wander around the board in circles. Biff wanders around the board in circles. You wander around the board in circles trying to avoid Biff and make George and Lorraine fall in love. It's just not intuitive or fun at all. Biff is a constant menace, setting you back every single time you make some progress toward victory. The game gets so many things right in recreating the look and feel of the movie, but unfortunately, the gameplay just isn't fun at all. This is an easy banishing decision. This game has to make like a tree and split. The next game getting banished is I'm the Boss. I recently ordered the excellent push your luck game Can't Stop from Eagle Griffin Games website, and they kindly tossed in a free copy of I'm the Boss. The only problem? I have no interest in playing I'm the Boss 
ever. This is the type of cutthroat negotiation game that me and my group avoid like the plague. Some people love games like these and that's totally fine, but it's not for me. This one is being banished still in its original shrink wrap. Now we come to the first game that doesn't actually belong to me, but it's part of the collection. This is Brew. My roommate picked up this dice placement area control game on a whim. And while it's a perfectly good game, I'm finding more and more that a game being good isn't enough to win it a spot at the table. After discussing the pros and cons, we realized that there just wasn't a scenario in which we'd ever play Brew over other games that we enjoy much more. So this one is getting banished, even though I'm not the rightful owner. And now we come to the final game, and also the first exception to today's rule. If you listened to the last episode, you heard me talk about how much I love a mechanic from Marvel Champions, but how much I dislike the game overall. This is a game that just fell flat for me and everyone I've tried to play it with. I like superheroes just fine, I'd call myself a Marvel fan, but Marvel Champions feels like a comic book story arc that goes on for three issues too long. Or for you MCU fans out there, it feels like a Marvel movie that lasts three hours instead of being over in 90 minutes. The game is just too long. You do the same thing over and over. There aren't nearly enough surprises or variety to justify the length of each game session. But I'm not banishing this one. I actually got rid of it completely. I've got a coworker who loves Marvel and he expressed interest in the game. So I gathered it up along with the extra characters and the expansion, and I brought it to the office and said, here you go. I'm always happy when I'm able to relocate a game to a new home that will enjoy it. And now I don't have to look at it and think about how dumb I was to buy expansions and add-ons before even trying the base game. So that's it for my banishing adventures so far. I'm sure down the line I'll banish more games and maybe we'll talk about them again. I think this is a fun topic and it's interesting to look at why some games just don't work for you and for your group. Now let's move on to the mechanic breakdown of Medieval Academy. Medieval Academy is a two to five player game designed by Nicholas Ponson and published in 2014 by Yellow. It currently sits at 1,148 ranked overall on Board Game Geek. In Medieval Academy, you are a squire in King Arthur's court and you are competing against the other squires to prove yourself the most worthy of becoming a knight. The way in which you do this is of course by winning the most points. You win points by getting the highest in seven different knightly disciplines, gallantry, Jousts, Tournaments, Education, King's Service, Quests, and Charity. You move up in each of these disciplines through card play. Each round begins with each player getting five cards. You choose one, then pass them to the player next to you. After you've drafted five cards, play begins with the first player. They will play a card valued two through five and move their player tracker up that many spaces on the associated discipline board. The next player then does the same and play goes around until all players have played four cards. One interesting aspect of this card play phase is that even though you draft five cards, you only play four of them. So that lends some strategic thought to maybe drafting something you know your neighbor needs or drafting a card that may or may not be useful and making a final decision on it later in the round, depending how things are playing out. One thing that makes this game so great is that no matter how well you draft, things can go in a completely different direction. Let's say you go heavy into jousting cards, drafting two threes. That should be enough to put you in a good position to score. But then the two players before you start out 
by playing a five jousting card and a four jousting card respectively. Now, your plans to invest heavily into jousting aren't looking quite as smart as they were before, and you may want to utilize a different card and focus on another discipline this round instead. Strategically, it sounds almost too simple, but there's a lot of hidden depth in this game. One thing to keep in mind is that not all disciplines reset at the same times, so your investment into a discipline carries over for several rounds. Instead of going for early round dominance in one or two disciplines, maybe you want to go up a bit in everything, aiming for later game benefits. Or maybe you're able to draft a surprisingly strong hand in your weakest discipline and can pull off a surprising surge that upsets the balance of a discipline that you weren't even competitive in at the start of that round. It's little nuances like that that make Medieval Academy so much fun. It also incorporates a great stacking rule. Let's say I play a three in tournaments. If the next player then plays a three card in tournaments, their player marker stacks on top of mine and now they're first and I'm second, even though we technically occupy the same space. This is just another one of the tiny things in a game that can play a huge strategic role. And one of my latest plays of Medieval Academy, one of the major scoring situations at the end of the game came down to a huge stack of player tokens as everyone made a late surge and dogpiled on top of the previous leader, taking them from first to last by stacking on top. I know it's a small detail, but it's just enough to provide those moments that you remember weeks and months after a game session. Now, let's talk about the mechanic that I want to break down today, and that's the variable scoring times. For me, this is what gives Medieval Academy its juiciest strategic quality. I've mentioned that there are seven different knightly disciplines that you'll be trying to move up in, but the thing I wanna break down here is the fact that not all of these disciplines score at the same times. Three of them score at the end of every turn. Two others score at the halfway point in the game and again at the end of the game, so on turns three and six. It's worth mentioning that these five disciplines also fully reset after the third turn which really shakes things up. And then the final two disciplines don't score until the end of the game, one of them rewarding a ton of points for the players in the top positions, and the other handing out some serious negative points for the players in the last few positions. These two disciplines that only score once never reset. The mark of a great mechanic is the one that makes a game feel special and takes it from one level to the next. And that's exactly what the variable scoring times do in Medieval Academy. If all seven of the knightly disciplines scored at the end of every turn, the game would have a minimal amount of strategy. Draft the cards you want, play them, move up on the tracks you want, score the points. But the variable scoring times throws a strategic curveball at you. Sure, I can go up in jousting and get three points at the end of this turn, but I can also start investing in the quests, which won't give me anything until the end of the game, but could pay out 17 points if I'm in first place. So now you're not just thinking about in the moment strategy, you're forced to plan long-term. Do I invest in short-term, low-point output disciplines? Do I go for multiple medium-length disciplines? Am I getting left behind in the charity discipline, which could mean I lose 10 points at the end of the game? I love the way the variable scoring times lift this game from a pretty simple strategic game into something that has more bite to it. 
It's still light. It's still easy for gamers of most levels to grasp, but it's got enough going on that I think it appeals to hardcore gamers too. I love how a simple design choice with a mechanic like this one can have such a major impact on the overall game. Just by offsetting when these different disciplines score, you introduce many more layers into a game that's already got fun, interesting elements to it. If you've never given Medieval Academy a chance, I highly recommend tracking down a copy. It's a perfect game that's light enough for anyone to understand, but heavy enough to keep hardcore gamers invested too. It's become a go-to for our family game nights and has really grown into one of my favorite games in my whole collection. I know Arthurian Knights isn't a theme for everyone, but the game handles it with a silly touch. It's got cartoonish art. There's nothing gritty or realistic here. One thing I do want to mention is that while it is possible to play this game at two players, I highly suggest you don't even bother. The only way to do it is to utilize a dummy AI third player that just drafts at random and plays cards at random. It's not even remotely fun. I fully ignore what the box says and consider this a strictly three player and up game. If you follow me on Instagram, you've probably seen posts I've been making about my first foray into solo gaming. I've got the first several sets of the original Lord of the Rings living card game from Fantasy Flight, and no one in my game group ever loved it enough to really dive into it with me, so I dusted all those cards off and decided to give it a shot and play a solo board game for the first time in my life. I've only done one session so far, but I had such an odd experience that I wanted to talk about it. I realized a few things right away. First, board gaming is very much tied to socialization for me. I play a lot of two-player games. It's very easy for my roommate and I to just grab a game and play. But even at two players, one of the things I find I enjoy is just engaging with my friend and doing something social. Game nights are obviously very social and there's laughter and conversation. In stark contrast, my first attempt at solo gaming was gravely silent. In hindsight, I realized that I should have turned on some music or something because the silence felt so awkward to me. From a purely gaming standpoint, I had a good time. As a matter of fact, I found the Lord of the Rings LCG to be much easier to manage and less fiddly solo than I did in all of my attempts to play it at two players. I'd say overall I had fun, but so far I haven't been able to force myself back to the table for my next solo session. When the opportunity is available, I've been watching a show or reading a book, doing anything but sitting there in that dreaded silence again. But I'm not giving up. I really like the idea of playing through all of the Lord of the Rings content I currently own. So I'm going to force myself to give solo gaming another try soon. And this time I'll make some smarter decisions and throw on some music. I'll check in again in a future episode and let you know how the pursuit of solo gaming is going. And if you've got a great solo game that you think I should check out, please shoot me an email and let me know. I'd love to look into it and pick it up. As we near the end of the episode, I always like to mention a game I'm looking forward to playing soon. This time, I'm going to say a game that I don't actually have yet, which is Planet Unknown. This is a polyomino game that has a really interesting Lazy Susan that holds all the pieces so you turn it and whatever pieces are presented toward you are the ones you can draft from. I don't know fully how it works, but it looks great. The early reviews, people seem to really love it. I pre-ordered it forever ago, like months and months back and I still don't have my copy, but I'm starting to see signs that it might be shipping out soon. So I'm excited to get this one and get it to the table. And that's it for this episode. Before you go, please take a moment and listen to all the ways you can follow the show and reach the show. The easiest way to get in touch with us is through email. You can email Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, 
at bgbreakdown.com. Follow us on Instagram at bgbreakdown. On Facebook, search for Board Game Breakdown. Breakdown is one word. Board game are two separate words. We've got a little Facebook group there that you can join and follow the page. And then on Board Game Arena, my name is BG Breakdown. So send me a friend request. Let's play a game online sometime. I wanna say thank you for being here and listening. As I'm sure you can tell by now, I love talking about board games and it's great to have friends like you along for the ride as I do. I hope all is well in your world right now. Remember to take care of yourself and just be good to the people around you. As for me, I'll see you in the next episode.